Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, September 27th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the state health officer discusses how early childhood interventions can identify and help treat illnesses early. Then General Motors employees on strike in a Gulf States newsroom report. Plus, an archivist from Jackson State University shares the story of the 1973 Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival at this week's History is Lunch. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Early Intervention Task Force is trying to find ways to improve the state's First Steps program. It serves infants under ages 3 who have qualifying developmental delays. The program provides treatment for services like physical and speech therapy. Medical leaders say identifying the signs of developmental problems early can help with treatment. Our Will Stribling speaks with State Health Officer Dr. Dan Edney about how the Early Steps program can make a difference in the lives of children. He says that mission begins with finding solutions to pay for care, such as changing how money gets from insurance companies into the hands of health care providers. We need service providers all over the state to cover all the families that we have. And right now, it's significant burden if a provider is taking care of a child and is billing private insurance. You know, that, that process can take three months. And then they find out that they're not going to pay. Then they're able to pivot and send that billing to us at the health department through the EIP program. And we are the, the payer of last resort. So we make sure everybody gets paid. But we need insurance to pay you know as much as we can get to protect our grant funding and the grant funding pays when there is the other payer so if it's an uninsured child which there won't be very many of those but we pay the provider for the service they do but that takes a while because they have to prove to us that they've done the right billing they've gone through the proper steps and have been denied so that could be another few months and that's just a long time for our providers to have to wait to get paid. So pay and chase is where the providers do the work and then they submit the billing to us first. We just verify that they did the service and then we pay the provider immediately. And then we pivot and bill whatever insurance, including Medicaid. And you know we're pretty good about tracking that down. You know, it it wouldn't matter as much for us if it took six months to get the payment versus a private provider. Yeah, what are the the hurdles that y'all will have to overcome to be able to, you know, transition to to that model if that's what y'all end up settling on? It'll be funding. Uh, We don't have enough money 
in the program to establish the bank because we would have to start writing payments day one. So there has to be a bank there to fund those payments until we have time to chase the money down. So we pay immediately and then we go chase the billing instead of the provider doing it. So we'll have to have an appropriation uh, sufficient to allow us to pay the providers while we're getting billed. And then that billing will go back into the bank and it just keeps recycling. Do you think that the legislative environment in 2024 will be friendly to something like that? Because I know we've, you know, we've got that surplus right now and also the governor's been, you know, harping on that new, new pro-life agenda, uh, you know, focus. And this seems like it would align with, with that. Right. It would. The, uh, Man, I, I can't predict, and, uh, and that's what I'm telling, you know, my friends on the task force is, look, I have no idea what our odds of success. Now, we have a couple of legislative champions that it's going to be on them to make it happen. You know, we'll advocate for it, uh, but really it's going to be, you know, those community partners out there pushing for the funding and then our legislative champions in the Senate and the House you know, working from the inside, you know, the health department, I will personally advocate for it, but it'll mean a lot more having a whole coalition working towards it. And I know that the task force is looking at, at different options, but do you think that this model is the best as far as being able to, you know, to bring in more providers and just to set these early intervention efforts, set them up for success long term? I do, but there are so many constraints on a state government agency and what we can and can't do, what type of employees we're able to recruit, and you know, and then just having the efficiency to get things done. And this is really where you know the private sector of providers intersects, you know, with state government, and and sometimes that's just not a good fit. So moving to the new model, it'll be, you know, community partners out in the community that are working with the providers and the families and the physicians. And then we'll be working with those community hubs, you know, and that makes a lot more sense to me. I think it'll be more efficient. I think it'll be less expensive. And we definitely will be able to serve more children, which is the most important thing. Explain that, the the community hub part of it to me. I heard y'all talk a little bit about it today but where would those need to be to ensure that access is is like it should be all around the state that's yet to be determined you know we have nine public health districts and it makes sense to me to have one access point in each district working with the providers in that area and the families in that area but we we still have to put some more work into that that's kind of where we are, but that's not solidified. Can you just just talk a bit about how important these efforts are, you know, that the, the benefits of intervening in, in, as early in a child's life, how that offers benefits not only for them in terms of their development, but also the, the state and the system long term? The evidence is very clear. The earlier that you intervene with developmental delays, the better the prognosis for the child. And as we're able to help children develop more properly, 
then that's less of a burden on the family and makes it more likely that parents will be able to be in the workforce versus having to be at home with a severely delayed child. And the cost of the system goes way down because all the special needs that would otherwise be needed in terms of accommodation for their disability doesn't exist. So we're talking about children that have you know, a treatable developmental delay that if they're properly treated, they're not, you know, they don't have to live with that disability the rest of their life. From children's education to gripping drama, documentaries to comedy, MPB Television brings the world to Mississippi. With local stories, cooking, health, and music, MPB Television takes Mississippi to the world. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The United Auto Workers strike is no longer contained to union strongholds in the north. Plants from Texas to Virginia have joined in. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom takes us to a picket line at a GM plant in Brandon. The UAW's starting strategy was to keep the strike limited to three big assembly plants. That helped limit the strike's pain on members by leaving a majority of them off the picket line. But for some, it's felt like waiting on the sideline. We hated it. Shelley Thomas is the union chairperson at the GM Distribution Center in Brandon, Mississippi. Hate is a strong word, but we quote unquote hated it. We was ready to go because we knew that, uh, you know, we we, we took a 97 percent strike vote in favor of the strike. Finally, on Friday, she got the call to join the strike. So now she's picketing outside her plant with a half dozen workers as a passing car honks in support. When we found out that we was going to uh, go, uh, we, we became excited because we feel like it's part of our fight, too. That fights for both job security and better pay, especially to catch up with inflation. Thomas says she's doing pretty well at $32 an hour, but she says new workers make half that. Some people can, can't, can't even afford a car to come here. Okay, they can, we can't afford to get the cars that we uh, make. Now, even with dozens more plants striking, this is still a tiny portion of the UAW membership. This plant only has about 100 workers. But Thomas says shutting it down will still be a nightmare for GM and its customers. We serve a lot of local customers through the different dealerships. Meaning customers needing a GM part to fix their car should get ready for a long wait. So it's not coming in today. It might not come in next week. It might not come in week after next. It might come in in January whenever we off strike. You're willing to go till January? I'm willing to go till next January. Omar Patterson also works at the plant, and he's not as enthusiastic about a long strike. Listen, the strike is good for no one. We're going to lose money. They're going to lose money. Who is it good for? Now, the thing about expanding the strike to southern states like Mississippi is that the honks of support from passing cars are the exception. Unions just aren't as well accepted here, something Patterson knows personally. So I go to Waffle House. I go to Waffle House at least three times a week, right? There's a gentleman there every morning. The day before the strike comes to Mississippi, Patterson walks in wearing a UAW shirt, and the man, the one he sees several times a week, goes off. The UAW and the Teamsters and all of that, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad. And I'm like, here we go. A lot of people in the South do not like unions. The thing is, Patterson's GM plant is the exception in the South, not just because it's unionized, but also because it's owned by an American car company. 
Foreign automakers have built a huge car-making hub in the South for decades. A big reason being because there are so few unions here. These foreign manufacturers are the biggest competition for the big three automakers, and in order to stay competitive, they say they can't raise wages as much as the UAW wants. But Patterson has seen his paycheck eaten up by inflation, so to him, a UAW win means getting the pay he deserves. Some people can can make it off of pennies, because that's all they've ever had. I can't. I can't. I can't. I will not. Only, only because I work my ass off in there and pay me for my work. That's all. I'm not asking for any more than what I'm worth. So even though he doesn't like the strike, he'll stick with the fight for a fair deal. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, an archivist from Jackson State University is sharing the story of the 1973 Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival at this week's History is Lunch. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Locally produced interactive programs continue on MPB Think Radio on Wednesdays. Find out what home repair projects you can accomplish on Fix It 101 at 9. At 10, get help with solving technology problems on everyday tech. Then, get your general health questions answered on the original Southern Remedy at 11. Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer, too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's been nearly 50 years since the 1973 Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival. The historic celebration of black culture took place at Jackson State University. Archivist Angela Stewart is with the Margaret Walker Center at the university. She'll be talking about the 1973 Poetry Festival during today's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. Stewart tells our Kobe Vance the festival was celebrating the 200th anniversary of Phyllis Wheatley's only published book of poetry. She says it helped pave the way for modern celebrations of black culture. It opened minds and eyes because Margaret Walker understood the concept of multiple styles of learning before that even really became a concept. So the festival was visual. Um, She had commissioned Elizabeth Catlett, a good friend of hers, to create a bronze bust based on the Scipio Moorhead engraving of Phyllis Wheatley. It was audio. She had singers. She had Jackson State Chorale. She had the Tougaloo College Gospel Choir. She had instrumentalists. She had JSU String Ensemble. Sarah Webster Fabio brought in her family and their jazz ensemble. So as well as the actual poets reciting their own original poetry, or in the case of Alice Walker, an original essay. 
how is it important for Margaret Walker getting this we're gonna getting this I'm sorry getting this festival up and running making sure that black voices had a, a chance to speak through poetry it provided visibility to people who were normally invisible one of the things that encouraged Margaret Walker to host the festival just a year prior 1972 she had attended the centennial celebration for Paul Lawrence Dunbar who was a very famous, probably the first African-American poet to make his living primarily as a poet. He was somebody who Margaret Walker grew up reciting and enjoying and as her earliest journal that we have at the Margaret Walker Center, she's transcribing one of his poems. But she realized that, okay, but there are so many women poets, including Paul Lawrence Dunbar's own ex-wife, Alice Dunbar Nelson, who never get the visibility or the recognition that male poets get. She looked through textbooks, anthologies, and she saw that they were weighted more toward, in terms of poetry, male poets. That there were women, you know, most people know in terms of the Harlem Renaissance about Langston Hughes and Honor Bontoms and County Cullen, but they don't really know about Ann Spencer or Georgia Douglas Johnson, who were also writing in that same period. Um, so she wanted to be sure, and she felt like schools and communities need humanities, and they need the ideas that humanities helped generate. It wasn't just for the Jackson State community, but it was for the entire community of Jackson. It was for the entire community of Mississippi and anyone else who had the opportunity to come because there were people from throughout the country who attended the festival. I wanted to also talk about the way that this festival allowed for the recording and I guess even bringing to the forefront of these voices. How has this, through historical means, cemented African-American artwork in Mississippi and preserved it for future generations? Mara Walker said it was like a prairie fire that it started. This was in 1973. In 1977, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority would record a double album of poetry and music featuring a number of the poets who actually appeared at the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival. Uh, Joanne Gavin at James Madison University would start what she called the Furious Flower Conference that happens approximately every 10 years to highlight um, African-American poetry. Kave Canem with Cornus Edie and others you know, developed after the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival. Nikki Giovanni said when she honored Toni Morrison that what she was going to be having at Virginia Tech, where Nikki Giovanni was working at that time, would be the most significant event involving black women writers since. Margaret Walker hosted the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival at Jackson State. So it had worldwide significance. 
the poets had the opportunity, certain groups of poets had the opportunity to participate in press conferences. They appeared on the local TV show, Coffee with Judy. They appeared on public broadcasting to talk about the festival, to talk about themselves, to talk about writing in general, and just what was going on in the world and in literature in 1973. Why poetry? What was it about the medium that they felt was uh, needing of a festival? Poetry is probably one of the most ancient art forms. Poetry has been a way for people to express how they feel for thousands of years. It's the self-expression that it allows. And you had various generations of poets at the festival. So you had the what I call the three Margarets, Margaret Walker, Margaret Danner, and Margaret Burroughs, who were from an older generation and wrote a more formal sense of poetry. But then you had the Carolyn Rogers and the June Jordans and Audre Lorde, who wrote a very personal, sometimes confrontational style of poetry. And poetry in the 1970s was very popular as a medium. The more well-known poets who attended the Phyllis Wheatley Poetry Festival were part of what was called the Black Arts Movement. And that paralleled the Black Power Movement. And it was about creativity. It's about self-determination. How do we move forward? We've, we've gotten the Civil Rights Act of 64. We've gotten the Voting Rights Act of 65. We're standing in the blood of Edgar Evers and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. How do we move the world forward? And poetry was one of the better ways to do it. And also, 200 years, that is a significant anniversary. In 1773, a young woman who had been kidnapped from her home in West Africa at seven or eight years old, she landed in Boston, and we don't even know her real name. Phyllis was the name of the ship that brought her to the United States, and Wheatley was the name of the people who purchased her. There probably wasn't a lot of memories that she had. She can imagine how her parents must have felt having her torn away from them. She could see the hypocrisy of talking about freedom and Christianity on the one hand and enslaving people on the other hand. So that's why poetry. Archivist Angela Stewart is with the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State University. She's speaking at today's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson at noon. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.